Hey everyone, it's Abadesi, your host of Product Hunt Radio, where I'm joined by the founders, investors, and makers that are shaping the future of tech. In this episode, I speak with Matthew Paul, an entrepreneur and former product designer at Envision. Matthew has worked on software and design systems at IBM, he's prototyped apps at Apple, and he's really passionate about typography. In this episode, he's going to dive into details of an open source project he's working on to pioneer best practices in this space. App developers spend way too much time testing and troubleshooting their mobile apps for them to be perfect. Those days are now over. Introducing Headspin for mobile. With Headspin's new all-in-one platform, you can now automate testing, monitor performance, and analyze user experience of your apps on real SIM-enabled devices and actual Wi-Fi and carrier networks anywhere in the world. No SDK required. Learn more about the Headspin Global Device Cloud at headspin.io. So Matthew, thanks so much for being on Product on Radio today. Really appreciate it. It's always fun to have someone from the community on the show, but even better to have a product designer because we haven't really had a ton on the season so far. So thanks for making time. Yes, thank you for having me. Incredible. I thought it might be fun to just start off by talking about some of the projects you're working on now that you're really excited about, and then sort of just getting the community to hear a bit more about how your career in product design has evolved over the last few years. You've worked at some incredible companies from IBM to Apple. So it'd be fun to kind of just start with what what you're most excited about right now, and then kind of just like work backwards and think of like how you evolved as a designer as you progressed from team to team. So what I'm working on now that I'm actually very excited about because it's kind of been fiddling around in my brain for the past two years is this, uh, it's going to be just an open source project, a mixture of some NPM package, yarn package, and design tool plugins for your favorite design tools, you know, Envision Studio, Figma, XD, Sketch. Um, and it is all around a better way to think about screen-based media typography. And I say screen-based media because we're evolving um, into a world where we can't just talk about typography for the web. And we can't just talk about typography for native applications. We're talking about typography for AR, for VR, for HUDs that sit um, you know, on the windshield of your cars. So anything that's a screen, you know, screen, I call screen-based media. And the project, uh, which we can dive into more later for sure if you'd like, is generally um, just kicked off because I was dissatisfied with how I was seeing the industry of designers use typography, even though they were using and thinking about mathematical type typography scales. Um, and by scale, I mean, you know, like you have your base font size and then your heading four, heading three, heading two, heading one, and it kind of grows through that scale. And there were people um, th- doing projects around modular scales, um, and there were people uh, writing about math- mathematical web typography. But for some reason, I couldn't really figure out why. It kind of really like irked me why I didn't like it. And, and one day it just clicked because it, it like all of this thinking was coming from a place of where design started, where our 
screens, if you will, our um, our medium was fixed. It was a piece of paper, you know, and those dimensions from those piece of paper, you know, came from a certain place. And then people derived type scales that looked good on those certain sizes of paper. And people were trying to retrofit that now to the screen and it didn't really work. So I've been looking into a project, um, a really easy to use kind of micro tool, I'll call it a utility tool um, for better screen-based media typography. This is really interesting. I kind of think of like the beginning of typography and what it might've looked like. Let's say it was calligraphy on parchment or something like that. And then exactly as you say, we went from looking at words on you know physical pieces of paper to looking at words on screens and even in the time that you know we've been working in the tech industry over the last few years we've seen that evolve you know you mentioned AR and VR we've got cars that have their own tech platforms now and what I guess is quite interesting is you know as an outsider so I'm not a designer myself but has there been any sort of consensus on how how to do this? Or is this something that you've sort of identified as an opportunity to like start a dialogue around, you know, what this should look like, like how best practices for typography should exist in a you know multi-screen world and lots of advances in how we process information on screens? That's a great question. I don't think that there has been much of a conversation around it like you talked about in Kat Noon's episode and like her whole business is focused around this word, this thing that's easy to latch onto and easy to toss up to an executive and say, this is important um, accessibility. I think that, you know, Kat talks a lot about how, you know, as we move forward in the future of technology and software products and hardware products, um, there's going to be actually like um, standards that, governments, companies, private companies, and people need to make. Um, otherwise, you know, they might be fined if they don't meet this color contrast, they don't meet this keyboard accessible interface, um, or, if or if their interface isn't accessible for screen reader users. And I don't really think there has been much of a talk around or a consensus around typography. And I would certainly be interested in that. As soon as you kind of get to this world of saying here's here here is like one way to do something designers get all you know they out in the field of the pitchforks because they say hey this is going to ruin our creativity this is going to got it this is going to um you know limit our ability to innovate yada yada but um yeah like i i think it would be interesting to say hey here is you know a mathematical engineered uh, e equation of function that offers, you know, really nice type sizes that are derived from the history of screens and they're really meant for screens. And sure, every font is going to need a different like little tweak. And that's why there are some parameters that you can tweak with this little tool, um, depending on, you know, what font you have or what base font size you want to have or how fast you want that scale to grow. Do you want it to be really gradual? Or do you want it to be really steep, et cetera? And so there's still some flexibility there, but it would be really interesting to see if there in the future, there would be some sort of like uh, people could come together and be like, 
create some standards around this so that you don't go to you don't go to one website and you see this like massively terrible typography and you go to you know another website that has you know a, a large massive company like Google who has millions millions of dollars to invest in their own typeface let alone let alone their own thinking around typography and so to, to really kind of give equal tooling to everyone not just the these big companies that can invest in it I wanted to ask you as as we were talking about you know what what standardization should exist if any so that we can maximize our experience as we interact with different interfaces and you know have different experiences with technology across different screens it got me thinking of the role that a product designer plays and the growing well i see as a consumer anyway like tensions between like what you want to design so that the user can get the most benefit from that experience and what you want to design so that the brand funding this project can also maximize whatever their success metrics for that product might be. And I was thinking about what you're saying in the context of, let's say, social media. Um, you know, Instagram's recently removed likes from posts in certain countries because they realize that there are like negative connotations for that feature where people are getting addicted to their phones or their use of Instagram is actually impacting their mental health in really negative ways and maybe even their physical health. Now that you have worked across so many different companies as a product designer, and you're now creating your own independent projects as a product designer, thinking about things like how can the most people benefit from what we make, do you feel that tension? Do you acknowledge that tension? Is that a tension that you have experienced in past roles, like where there might be some divergence between what you as a designer feel is the optimal experience for the end user? But what, let's say, a brand feels is the optimal design to maximize on the success metrics they need. Uh, yes, of course. And I won't get into any specific projects or companies for respectful reasons, but it does come up and I have seen it. And in fact, it kind of scares me for the past 10 years, designers um, you know, all the way from the first designers they started to hire at Facebook and Julie moved up now and is VP of design at Facebook after 12 years or so. You know, people have been talking about designers wanting a seat at the table. And hey, guess what? Now we got one. And I mean, looking at decision making power, looking at salaries across the industry. Designers are right up there with software engineers, product managers, and these people that are, like you said, really concerned with, uh, you know, hitting certain metrics, hitting certain, uh, whether it's brand or whether it's product sales or whether it's um, some just number that they need to move the needle on, right, to show that, hey, we didn't have a bad quarter, so you know, if they're looking to lay off anyone in our startup, it's not going to come from our organization. And as a designer, you have to be really cognizant about that. And you have to always, always bring the customer back to the conversation. And you have to invite your product managers and you have to invite their bosses, the product directors, 
and their bosses, the VPs, and same with engineering, the engineers and their managers, invite them into your conversations with customers, into your interviews as you're, in, as you're testing your prototypes. Let them hear firsthand what the customer has to say. Or if they can't make it, record a video, send it to them. And why I said it scares me is because this gets into the question of ethics and this this uh, topic of design ethics. And I think there's only a few people that are really, that, that at least that I know, <laughs> a few people that I know that are really writing about it and talking about it and making it a point to actually start to bring this conversation to the point where the people that are the decision makers will really listen. Mm. Yeah, no, I think, I think you're so right. I think um, having these conversations, just creating dialogue around it and making sure teams are having a conversation about it is already progress, but it's important that we commit to that and, and have those conversations. I think, you know, going back again to all the unique experiences you've had you've worked um at huge tech corps like apple and ibm and you know most recently you've been at envision and i was wondering when you think of all the products you've been involved with launching whether that was business apps at apple or you know tools for designers in your most recent roles you've had an opportunity to work probably with like lots of different types of sprint styles, lots of different types of teams, you know, matching a designer with a developer or matching two designers with one developer or whatever that case might be. And I know when we have um, AMAs and enriched reviews for our makers community, people are always really curious about learning like what to avoid doing. Like people are always really interested to know what are these, you know, common ideas and notions we have about ways of working or ways of building that we really still hold firm to when in reality, they're not actually that effective. Actually, here is a way more effective way of doing something. And with that in mind, I thought it might be quite fun to ask you to reflect on some of maybe the more challenging projects that you've had and share with all of us listening, all of the makers in particular, some of those like mistakes that folks make when, when they're thinking about product design or, you know, even when they are working with designers, just sort of like reflecting on experiences you've had, what would be some of those like lessons or, or stories that you'd like to share? Yeah, I have so many. First piece of advice would be uh, don't run a design sprint unless you actually know what it is and know why you need to do it. And have a really good plan on how to make it successful. And if you do, don't invite 26 people to it because that doesn't make sense. Not that that's ever happened to me. I've just heard the horror, the horror stories. So this is a really great question because I, I have a friend who's recently been in this situation. So what would you say is a sensible way to run a design sprint if someone is sort of like really pushing, let's say someone in a company really wants to get designs for something, whether that's like a new landing page, a new mobile app, what would be a sensible way to get, you know, designers working quickly towards some some first versions of mock-ups or something like that? Well, it really depends. If it's it depends what the ask is, what the problem is, or what the opportunity is. Or if you don't know any of those things, then that's the best time for a design sprint. If you already have an idea of something, you don't need a design sprint. I think design sprints and 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 different 
different design thinking uh, activities, you can call them, that you can pull from your tool belt, like experience-based road mapping or empathy mapping, um, as is 2B journey mapping, which are all kind of you can tie in and weave in and create your own design sprint, if you will. But um, I think that a design sprint and the purpose of it is to find out what is the best thing that we can make for our customers and for our business right now. And during a design sprint, you're going to forecast out and you're going to think about, okay, you know, this is where we want to get to, but let's say this is a random example and it might not be random. It might've been legitimate, but let's say Uber said that in, you know, they want to be able to accept credit cards. You know, they want to accept credit cards through their app so people can take rides. And they want to be able to do that for any credit card anywhere around the world. Now, that's a very complicated system that involves governments, that involves internationality, that involves banks, that involves credit history, credit companies. And so if they want that to happen, what's the first step and what could they build today? Maybe maybe the first step is, hey, you can use, you know, Visa, American Express, and MasterCard. And that alone, people will be like, oh my God, this is amazing. And people will start using it. And somebody might even switch their credit card just to use it, you know? You know, but that's what a design sprint is really good for is to find out what's the best thing we can build today to rapidly iterate on some like, like really um, kind of kind of hone in on what what the idea is and what like rally everyone around know to know what you want to build and then just get a couple different options of maybe how we might um, make this a reality put that in front of some customers and then by the end of it hopefully you have someone that's really good at synthesis and can synthesize all that information and say okay here is where we need to go next you're never going to end a design sprint with with like the answer or the, the finished thing. I think that's a really helpful framework. That's that's great. I like that. It makes sense. Seeing it from your side as well um, totally, totally makes sense about, you know, why it shouldn't be rushed and why it should have the right intentions. That's great. Awesome. Okay. What about the next, next piece of advice? <laughs> the next tip? Yeah, the next tip. This just makes me laugh looking back on experiences and thinking about how, like, how much I cared about them at the time. And then, and then how much I like, how little I care about them now. So just an extra tip is just don't get wrapped up in, in whatever the problem is. Like, and by problem, I mean like with your team or, or your, you know, um, operational stuff. Um, obviously get wrapped up in the problems of what you're trying to build or, or, or ship because that's, that's the fun stuff. But so, yeah, the situation was we were just finishing up project one of them that's in in my portfolio not live for anyone to see i really don't put any work live i don't have really a reason why i might soon but this project i did internally known as uh whitewater um but uh it was like ibm tool belt so it was a uh a web application for financial analysts and team leaders to manage the access control and um, finances for third-party 
uh, software. So at IBM, we were really trying to shift the culture into a more design thinking, agile way of working. And instead of using these antiquated, really slow, really unknown, so, you know, high cost of onboarding tools that IBM built themselves and owns themselves, they said, hey, let's use Slack. Let's use GitHub Enterprise. Let's use, um, well, eventually Slack Enterprise Grid. We were like the second customer on that before they even had had Slack Enterprise Grid. So we even pitched some concepts to them about how they could grow into that model. Um, but after that project, I've, a few of us, I think a group of six of us, um, and we're all fairly young, um, but we spun off and we were tasked with kind of coming up with this new project for IBM for internal for internal use. And I, w- I won't get into the specifics of it, but we had kind of a design lead, two design ICs, uh, two uh, engineer ICs, an engineering lead, and... By IC, uh, you mean individual contributor, right? Yes, I do. I guess we were, we were all pretty much individual contributors. So these, the leads were still IC. ICs, like they weren't managing us. Um, we were all managed, you know, by people that weren't directly involved in our work, which also I think is a good thing I've learned, which we can get into. Uh, but the thing is, um, we had uh, the engineering lead really strongly opinionated person. He wanted to, and was sort of obsessed with this idea of there be this one-to-one ratio. Uh, one designer to every engineer and that you would work in pairs on your user stories and designers wouldn't work ahead. And we would all six of us or eight of us or whatever do, you know, sprint planning and sizing together. And he was very like wanted to be strict around how we wrote user stories using this sort of syntax of a way to write user stories called Gherkin. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of it. Um, maybe maybe someone listening will. Um, you can look it up. I also believe gherkin means pickle. Or it does here in the UK. Love them in a sandwich. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Don't love them in your story. <laughs> yeah, and so it just didn't work. It re- like it really didn't work. Like because naturally, you know, some of the designers on the team, some of the engineers on the team are really skilled in some areas like research um, where others are really skilled in, you know, backend language like Go or, you know, another designer might be really skilled in visual and interaction design. And when, you know, you have uh, one in one pair that's supposed to own an, an entire user story, which you can even break down into like smaller tickets so that you can ship even more incrementally it becomes really hard to deliver in that way. And it almost became impossible. And I would look back and never want to do that. I think the healthiest environment on the flip side that I've ever worked in was actually at Envision. It was really cool to see them um, sort of grow and evolve into this model. And they were just starting to try it out right as I joined, um, which I didn't know. I thought they were already kind of like running smoothly like this for a while because it It came in and it felt so smooth, but basically they had individual squads, you know, completely autonomous, working on 
their sort of um, you know section of the overall offering. As Envision has many different products and many different offerings, and they all tie together. So obviously we have to work across squads and whatever. But our squad alone, we we had a trio we called it, which was um, a design lead, a engineering manager, and a product manager. And I say design lead because you're, it's just the only designer on the whole team, which I thought was really, which I thought was really cool too. It gave a lot of autonomy and a lot of responsibility to that designer. And then obviously, um, like you know, through our zone of squads, like our, our our group, our larger group of squads, we would have like weekly critiques, sometimes biweekly. But yeah, that back to that squad. So that was like the trio. And then beyond that, there was anywhere from, I don't know, four to maximum like seven or eight software engineers. And that works out as a really good model. And you might hear that across the industry as a, as a ratio that people shoot for is that like one designer to eight software engineer ratio. Wow. One to eight. That's healthy. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think it works pretty well, actually. That's awesome. I really appreciate you kind of like reflecting directly onto when you were in the trenches and thinking, oh, this is working great versus "Hmm, this is not working so great. Because I always feel that once enough time has passed and, you know, you can reflect on those experiences, it puts you in the best position to think a bit more objectively and go like, okay, if I could do that all over again, what would I do differently? And what would change, you know, to reach the outcome quicker or more productively more effectively um so i really appreciate you kind of going into the recesses of memory and bringing those back up that's awesome so you've spoken a bit about um you know intention and like really thinking clearly about you know why you want to do a design sprint for example like what you know what the outcome is and being realistic about what are realistic outcomes given like the time or the information available uh you've also talked a bit about you know the structure of teams when it comes to building so What's the best way for teams to you know, lead, share information? What's the right ratio of different functions? That's all been incredible. I wondered, were there any other reflections that you had either about how to make the most of a design team or working with a designer or reflections on how, um, you know, when makers are shipping new features and new products, like things to keep in mind when doing that? Yeah, one thing comes to mind and it, might not be what you're expecting. <laughs> so I'll keep it short and uh, feel free to ask the same question, maybe in a different way. But the uh, I actually learned this quite recently and it sounds so obvious in retrospect, such as life. But seriously, don't be afraid to ask for help at a, at a decent company, at a decent place. No one's going to get dinged for asking for help. You're going to get dinged, not right away, but it's going to, it's going to take a while, but you're going to get dinged if you don't. And if you're overwhelmed and you try to take on too much, um, because what happens is you just end up either burning out or not doing a job, a great job at any of the things. And it's hard sometimes, whether it's because you're really proud of something you're working on or whether it's, you're scared that you're going to, you know, look bad for asking for help or it's, you know, your human ego saying, oh, no, I can do this. But yeah, I mean, like at one point there was, there were a couple of things on my plate and I 
really cared for both of them and I wanted to see both of them of them through. But I I had to tell my manager, look, if if you really want this thing to be done well, like please give it to someone else. I want to work on it. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, I really, I really want to do it. But like, if you want this done well, like, please bring someone else in and and have them do it. And that was a hard lesson to learn because I spent many, many years not doing that. Yeah. I think it's incredible for us to reflect on how difficult it is to ask for help. Um, and I, I'm very grateful that you bring it up because, you know, I'm thinking of even being a part of the product and team. We did a workshop, um, the last time we had an offsite and we were just talking about imposter syndrome and how that impacts our work and, you know, what it looks like when it manifests itself in either the way we communicate with each other about projects or the way we communicate about what we're working on. And every single person on the team brought up the fact that, you know, there are times when, they want to ask for help or more information or clarification, but they're concerned about how that could be interpreted. And that's even in, you know, a team which is super open and super positive and also like quite small and quite close. So there's definitely something just very human about that and, and very human about um, just, you know, feeling awkward or whatever and being worried. Um, so I think you're absolutely right. You know, it's so important to ask for help. It's so important to just like flag stuff that could be an issue as soon as it happens and not waiting for it to actually be a problem. I think that's what you're alluding to as well. It's unfortunate that I think many companies really are trying and sometimes they don't know how to try to make their workplaces not only diverse, but, but safe and diverse in other ways. And what I mean by that is that I think that people expect makers, uh, whether you're a designer or an engineer, product people, definitely executives, they expect them to be a certain person. They expect them to fit a certain mold. They expect them to be really good at executive functioning. You know, being able to like have a, a set of cognitive pro- processes that are able that able you to you know work in a very linear fashion, um, plan things out, go step by step, the ability to get tasks done, uh, the ability to multitask, all that stuff. And the the fact is that we're just all not like that. We're, our brains are, are not all not built that way. And I believe there's a term for that called neurodiversity. I think that like looking back on my career, a lot of the things I ran into and the situations I got into and the times that people may have told me that I was hard to work with was because I was not neurotypical. I was neuroatypical compared to what their neuro norm is. And Uh, I think that's the next wave of like what we need to think about in terms of inclusion in the workspace is um, people's mental health and people's, uh, you know, not only just do they have like a mental um, health condition, but, you know, let's dig deeper. Let's learn even more about these things about like neurodiversity. 
Absolutely. You put this in a really, really good way. Like I think neurodiversity is, I don't know, like many things in our space, words kind of go on vacation a bit and kind of go away from what they are meant to mean. But I feel um, like I can relate a lot to what you said about being in an environment where you express things in a certain way or, you know, question things in a certain way. And when that is not the way of communicating or the way of, you know, thinking out loud that let's say the person leading that project is used to, it's almost as if your contributions are, are not as valuable as someone who could say the same thing in a different way or, or communicate in a different way. And I think it's challenging in our industry in particular, because we optimize for innovation so much and we want to challenge things all the time and we want to think differently. But then at the same time, we don't always create a space or an environment or a way of working that allows everyone to equally participate in doing that. (laughs) Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And what they tell you is that, oh, you need to get better at, you know, your storytelling or you need to get better at your presentation skills or your presenting. And it's like, it's like, do I, or do, do you need to just get better at understanding how I present? Yeah. And listening, get better at listening. All of us can always get better at listening, right? <laughs> Matthew, I mean, I could talk to you all day, but I know we don't have that time, sadly. So there are just like two things I wanted to ask you before we wrap up. One of them is products that you're obsessed with. I'm sure like we're going to get a ton of really cool tools and apps and stuff that you use. But the other thing is more personal around how you invest in yourself as a techie, as a product designer, as a maker. You know, you obviously care a lot about your industry and you're thinking a lot about the future of it and what you can contribute to make it better. So I just wonder, like, are there newsletters you read, books you're obsessed with, podcasts? What's like the media you consume for your own personal development? And then tell us about your fave products in general. (laughs) Personal development as a product designer, I think in the earlier years, I was, I mean, if we're talking way back, like uh, university days and graduating and landing, you know, my first job, I was obsessed with all of the blogs, um, downloading all of the texture packs, all of that jazz, all of that stuff. I was obsessed with looking at Dribbble. I was obsessed with, you know, illustrating. And I thought I was going to be you know, this, this sort of graphic designer, this brand designer. And obviously that's not the case now. Mostly work um, between like product and research and code. And as I progressed, I think slowly and slowly, I just cared less and less about that stuff. I think they still provide a great service to the industry, you know, for what they do. It's just, you know, I'm no longer their, their market. And so you know, I mean, what I try to do to progress in my like skills and in my career these days is is I just try to talk to people. I I try to meet new people, and I I'll I'll say this without joking. Like I literally have gotten every single job um, that I've ever had through Twitter just by somebody reaching out to me me reaching out to them, uh, introductions happening that way. And I think fortunately through my work, you know, early on, this was maybe starting like seven years ago at IBM and and at Apple, there was 
quite a bit of travel all around the United States, at least. And for IBM, a little, little bit internationally. And, and at IBM, they would fly in a ton of people internationally to Austin because it was like the first design studio they built. And now they, ha- now they have like 43 or some crazy wow. number of studios <laughs> around the world. Yeah, yeah. Um, I could talk for ages about my time there. But what I was getting at is that I think I just learned the most from meeting new people and hearing what they're working on. And that taking a little spark of what they're working on and seeing if I can include that into my work, or maybe that just gives me a little more fire to go finish something that I'm working on. Um, And as I travel to these different cities, um, which used to be through work and now is more personal um, travel because I work remotely for the past two years. So I didn't really need to travel. Um, I would just hit up people on Twitter and, say like, Hey, do you want to get a coffee or a tea or a snack? Um, and have met people that are now like lifelong friends that way. Incredible. Yeah. I definitely think we underestimate the power of learning from the people around us. I often ask, I often get asked, Oh, Abadesi, will you be my mentor? Will you help me find a mentor by people who are just a few years you know, younger than me getting along in the tech industry? And I'll always encourage them to connect with other people in their field. Like, oh, great, you want to get into community, like speak to other community managers or like, oh, great, you're like interested in marketing, like speak to other marketers, like learn from each other. And I guess I'm just echoing what you're saying as a reminder to the listeners too. There's so much we can learn from the people around us. Yeah, I totally agree. I guess really quickly, you asked about some books that I'm reading. um, Yeah, exactly. Like, are there any books that you'd recommend? Yes, there is uh, one design-related re- book that I recommend because it, it's something I recommend to literally everyone. And um, I haven't come across a single person that's ever even heard of it. it, it well, the thing is, it was um, it was really hard to get a hold of for a while. It was out of production and not originally even produced in the United States. And so when when this woman who came over from Ireland, from Dublin, to work at IBM for a few days she like brought this book with her and I was like I knew about it and I was like can I please like borrow that for like the few days you're here and I went home and I read the whole thing one night granted it's only you know 60 pages so not much of an accomplishment uh reading wise but it's called detail in typography a concise yet rich discussion of all the small things that enhance the legibility of texts and it's written by this person named Jost Hochuli. I hope I said that right. Um, but yes, detail in typography. It is now back in print, edition B42, apparently. And you can, um, I think, buy it right off Amazon. Or I would rather you just go directly to whatever whoever produces it and buy it from them. Amazing. That's so cool. Thank you for that. I can tell you're going deep down the typography dark tunnel sometimes, just um, reading up on all that. And then, so when it comes to the apps and products that you're obsessed with, maybe not necessarily work-related, these are just things that always on your home screen or some new physical object that you just got recently and you're kind of obsessed with. Obviously, we're product fans here at Product Hunt, so it's kind of just a fun time to hear what you love. Yeah, I pretty much... Living in New York City, I don't leave anywhere without my AirPods. 
as many like note taking or reminder apps out there. Um, I still use Simple Note, which has been around for ages and like hasn't changed much. Like they still don't even let you like change the size of text or bold anything. <laughs> And so it's called Simple Note. Um, it just syncs really well. I mean, obviously, like one password is great. Headspace Sleep App. Shout out to uh, my friend Christine Shaw, if she ever listens. Um, she worked on the Sleep App for that. Um, it's amazing. Um, it's a little tab at the bottom of Headspace. And I guess the last tech product is. Uh, I use this thing called Magnet. I think it was like a dollar or a dollar ninety nine from the home, uh, from the app store. But um, there's others like it. I really love it because it it just has all the short keys and it allows you to just move uh, windows around on your screen. So you can like m- you know expand something full screen, move it to the left, move it to the right, up down, top left, top right, left third. Uh, left two thirds, right third, all that stuff. And you can even, if you have two monitors, you can just by key commands, like send them between monitors and stuff like that. Awesome. Amazing. And so what about folks who are listening and going, oh my gosh, I want to find out more about this typography tool that he's building, or I just want to like reach out to him. He sounds like a cool guy and he's obviously up for talking to people that reach out to him on Twitter. So I'm going to do that. How should folks find you? Yeah, definitely find me at Twitter. Um, my handle is at Matthew C. Paul. So my name with my middle initial in between. And yeah, please reach out to me there. DMs are open, but be respectful. The type tool I'm working on um, and that I'm really excited about. Yeah, um, I'll uh, look for it on Product Hunt. I don't even have a name for it yet, um, but it, it, you know, I'm I should be wrapping up the majority of the tooling around this month. And then I'll start working on like the design tool plugins in March. Um, so it'll, it'll kind of roll out in phases, but yeah, look for it on product hunt. And um, I'm also going to be making some uh, getting back to my physical making roots and making some enamel pins, stickers and screen prints uh, based around dragon ball, dragon ball Z and dragon ball super, because I'm a super nerd of Dragon Ball. Amazing. I love that. Thank you so much, Matthew. Thanks for being on Product Time Radio. Thank you for having me. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into Product Hunt Radio. I've got a favor to ask you. Will you take a minute to review us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to us right now? Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, share the podcast with your friends on Twitter and tag a guest you'd like to hear in a future episode. See you soon.